1: hello and welcome to daily wisdom walking the path with the buddha today is talking about chapter 22. this group learning program has been going on for almost six months now and we're entering our last month here before we finish up the entire book developing a life practice the path that leads to enlightenment and throughout this program throughout this book throughout the entire career of Gautama buddha to share his teachings He taught about how to train the mind to improve the condition of the mind. This is what you've been learning as you've been progressing in your practice and potentially developing your practice through learning the Eightfold Path and doing meditation and all the other aspects of this path. Well, today in Chapter 22, you're going to learn about mental health and how today the way that we look at mental health is very different than the way that it was looked at during the lifetime of Gautama Buddha. Today, we do things very differently. We think of sadness, anxiety, stress, and other kind of unwelcome feelings in the mind as mental illness or a defective brain. Well, in reality, these feelings that arise in the mind can be completely eliminated without any medications, without anything to buy, without going out and doing any expensive treatments or anything like this, you can actually solve the true problem that's in the mind and causing these unwelcomed feelings. As we progress today, we're going to talk about how the mind functions. We're going to talk about these symptoms that are classified as mental illness today. We're going to talk about the difference between the mind and the brain. We're going to talk about a lot of different things as we progress. And what we're going to be talking about is built upon some things that we've already discussed in the past. So rather than assume that people have learned the things that I've shared in the past, I'm going to be sharing some things with you guys that some of you have already learned. It's a great refresher. You can't learn these things enough in terms of the Buddhist teachings, the things like the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, all of these other teachings, learning them in depth and really soaking them into the mind. It would be impossible to learn them too much. So as a way to refresh all of you on what the problems are in the unenlightened mind, Before we talk about the delusion of mental health practices that exist today, we need to talk about the true problems that are in the unenlightened mind and in the human mind so that then we can cast a light on the things that we see around us today to be able to talk about the solution to these things. So I'm really pleased that you decided to join today. You're going to have opportunity to ask questions as we go throughout the class today. And the way that you do that is just Put your question into the comment section of Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. You can also raise your hand electronically and ask your questions directly. So as we progress today, you'll be able to ask any questions at different times. What's important to understand is as a society, as all of humanity, that as we're born into this world and we socialize, we tend to conform to what's around us. We tend to conform to what's going on. We tend to learn from social cues. Some of these things are actually very healthy. This is what keeps a species moving forward. So a pack of wolves learn from each other. A herd of elephants learn from each other. We talked about this when we talked about the animal consciousness, about how this is actually helpful we also do that in the human world as well. We conform to what's going on around us and what we see. But what these teachings are all about and what the path to enlightenment is about is not about conforming. Because enlightened beings, they don't conform because the vast majority of society is unenlightened and experiencing discontentedness. So if people just always conform to what was Currently, going on in society, then you're going to stay in the discontentedness. To be able to evolve beyond the unenlightened mind and get to this higher consciousness, you have to be able to look at things objectively, learning, reflecting, and then practicing so that you can see the truth for yourself. So rather than conform to what's going on around us, it's important to look at things very closely so that you can objectively learn what's happening and be able to see the truth. So every time that I teach the Three Universal Truths and the Four Noble Truths, I always teach to never believe what I'm sharing because you won't be able to understand the topic for today, including the Three Universal Truths and Four Noble Truths if you are just conforming and you're not able to objectively look at what it is that I'm sharing. You won't be able to see the truth if you just believe what I'm sharing. Instead, you need to be able to learn and reflect, and then through your own experiences, experiences that you've had in life, you'll need to be able to contrast what I'm sharing to see, is this truth or not? And where you're not sure, that's where you ask questions and get clarification. So in order to understand the mental health practices of today and why I say it's a modern day delusion, it's important for us to talk about the Three Universal Truths and Four Noble Truths. And as we do, it's important to also understand that the suffering or anguish that is experienced by people who are classified or labeled as mentally ill or mentally unstable, this anguish, this suffering is 100% real. People are experiencing in the world significant symptoms that are causing havoc in their life but the cause of what's actually causing those problems, therefore the solution that's being implemented is not the truth of what we're learning in society and what people are conforming to. So today you're you're going to learn what the true problem of sadness, anxiety, frustration, irritation, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, all of these discontent feelings, we're gonna talk about those But then we're also going to look at these in relationship to these labels of ADD and ADHD and bipolar disorder and depression and anorexia, bulimia, suicidal thoughts, PTSD, all of these other categorizations of how today people have taken these symptoms of discontentedness and have kind of lumped them in groups, added a label to it. And now we're saying that person is mentally ill. So as we go, feel free to ask questions. And for some of you guys, this will be a refresher. And for others, this may be the first time that you've heard this, but either way, I'm very pleased that you've decided to learn today. So let's look at the three universal truths. In order to understand the problems with the unenlightened mind, you need to start to gain wisdom. Because the reason why the mind is experiencing discontentedness, aside from the detailed reason that I'm going to talk about in a bit, is that the mind doesn't understand the natural laws of existence. So the mind has ignorance or this unknowing of true reality. In order to remedy that, you need wisdom. And what the Buddha shares in his teachings is not a religion. It's not belief. It's not worship. It's not following something based on faith. It's learning the natural laws of existence. And when you see them and observe them in practice, that they are the truth, then the mind gains wisdom. And through this wisdom, you will make different decisions. The mind will awaken to true reality. So this first part that I'm going to share with you, the three universal truths, this is sharing the natural laws of existence as it relates to three universal truths, and we call them universal truths because you can see them for yourself. Once I share them with you, you can think and reflect and you can see the truth for yourself. You still may need to soak that in the mind over multiple sessions and going out into the world and seeing it for yourself, but these teachings aren't based on belief. You can independently see the truth for yourself this first universal truth of impermanence. Essentially, what the Buddha is sharing is that things are constantly changing. There's no permanent fixed state. So if you think about the physical body that you've inhabited for this life, has it been permanent? Has it been the same your entire life? Or has it been constantly changing? This is how you reflect to see if the Buddha's teachings are true or not have you had the same job your whole life have you slept in the same bed your whole life have you had the same relationships your whole life has your hair been the same length your whole life have you had the same job your whole life these are the things that you can reflect on and see is the buddha's universal truth of impermanence actually true or not and when you investigate this applying effort and energy you can see That in fact, all of these things in life are impermanent, whether it's where you live, whether it's your jobs, whether it's your relationships, whether it's your possessions, whether it's your thoughts, ideas, states of mind. Essentially, everything is constantly changing. All conditioned feelings are going to arise. They're going to change and then they're going to cease to exist. And what we mean by a conditioned feeling is a feeling that's based on some condition. You got a new car. Oh, I'm happy. I got a new job. I'm happy. I changed to a new living situation. Oh, I'm happy. I'm excited. I'm thrilled because I've got something new in my life. And it makes the mind experience these pleasant feelings of happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria, or some other pleasant feeling. This is a conditioned feeling. But if we allow the mind to experience that excitement, then also because that condition is impermanent, it's going to change and it's going to become a painful feeling at some time. Sadness or boredom or loneliness or some other feeling is going to come into the mind. So all the feelings in the mind that are based on some condition some impermanent condition they're going to be constantly changing and we're going to see the mind be happy it's going to be sad it's going to be angry it's going to be frustrated it's going to be bored it's going to be lonely okay maybe it's peaceful for a while okay maybe it's angry maybe it's frustrated maybe there's guilt maybe there's fear the mind's just going to be jumping around like this because an untrained mind is going to base its inner feelings on these impermanent conditions and this is what's causing the mind to jump around which we're gonna get into in a little bit more here an enlightened mind doesn't do that there's no changes in the condition of the enlightened mind it's steady it's constant it's fixed essentially enlightenment is permanent but these impermanent feelings are are constantly changing in the mind because they're based on impermanent conditions that's what happens with the unenlightened mind because it's untrained and it doesn't understand impermanence so the mind gets really excited about this new car or this new boyfriend or girlfriend or this new living arrangement or some situation or some tangible object the mind gets really thrilled and excited about this and it feels these pleasant feelings. But then at some point when those conditions are gone, experiencing impermanence, that's where the mind doesn't understand this impermanence, and it starts experiencing painful feelings or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. So moving from the first universal truth of impermanence, you need to be able to see that all conditioned things around you are impermanent your phone, your car, your relationships, your clothing, your jewelry, your hair, the body, all of these things are all going to leave you someday. They can't be with you permanently. Either they're going to break, they're going to get used up, someone's going to maybe steal it, maybe you lose it, maybe you misplace it. All these things are all impermanent. The second universal truth is discontentedness. The mind experiences three feelings, pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. These are the conditioned feelings. The mind experiences happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, exhilaration, euphoria based on some condition that exists, and the mind chases after these pleasant feelings, wanting these pleasant feelings. So it chases after the objects of its affection. There's also these painful feelings of sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, stress, anxiety, other things like this. These are part of an untrained mind because it's basing its inner feelings on these impermanent conditions. And when those pleasant feelings arise, they change, and then they fade away, then the mind slips into either painful feelings or neither painful nor pleasant like boredom, loneliness, melancholy, shyness, being displeased or uncomfortable or unsatisfied. This is what's happening in the unenlightened mind. And you've experienced this your whole life where your mind has experienced these temporary feelings, and it bounces around with maybe periods of contentment or peacefulness here and there but it never is lasting. It's never a permanent peacefulness because it's just a matter of time before the conditions change. And now the mind goes in a different direction. and either goes towards pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. So if you look at your mind and you see these feelings arising, changing, and ceasing to exist, this is discontentedness. This is the universal truth of discontentedness, that all unenlightened beings are essentially going to be experiencing these discontent feelings. As you train the mind closer and closer to enlightenment, these feelings diminish, and then eventually they're extinguished. The conditioned feelings are extinguished. There's still going to be peacefulness, calmness, serenity, contentedness, and joy but it's just always there. It doesn't arise, it doesn't change, and it doesn't fade away. The mind is just always experiencing this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. So if it's raining outside, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. If it's sunny outside, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. If you get a new car, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. If you get into an accident, okay, you can still be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. You're not joyful because of the accident. You're joyful despite the accident, that you don't allow this accident to invade the contentedness in the mind and invade the joy. An enlightened being doesn't base its inner feelings on these external impermanent conditions. So it can maintain these feelings or this mental states of being peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently because it's no longer basing its inner feelings on these impermanent conditions. It's been trained not to do that. So that's the universal truth of discontentedness. Then there's this universal truth of non-self, which is something you need to understand and hear many times. I talk about it in chapter four. I talk about it in chapter 16 and as students need personal guidance we talk about it in personal guidance as well essentially what this universal truth is is this is helping you to see that there is no permanent self in the mind well what is a self a self is made up of the self image how you want to be perceived in terms of your image you know how your hair looks how your makeup looks your jewelry your face your clothing a certain self-image as well as a certain self-identity your identity is maybe I'm a female who lives in America who has a boyfriend or husband I have children I'm a hard worker I live in this state I have this type of personality I do this occupation so forth and so on so if you have a self, you're going to identify with certain aspects of the mind, and it's going to hold on to those. And the problem is, is that when there's a self-identity in the mind, where there are certain things you identify with, or there's a certain self-image that you want to project in the world, when you hear disagreeable things associated with these, you're going to experience painful feelings. So let's just say I am a person who prefers male partners as a sexual preference and i identify with being a gay male for example if i hear people talking negatively about that then a person who still has a self in the mind is going to be disgruntled about that they're going to be grumpy they're going to get angry they're going to uh, have discontentedness because the mind is holding on to this permanent self, thinking that this identity is who they are, that this self-image and this self-identity, these certain qualities, is what makes the self. And the mind holding on to this, it's now going to be fearful. And when it hears things that are disagreeable, it's going to experience painful feelings. And when it hears things that are agreeable, oh, you're so kind, you're so friendly, you're so wise, your teachings are amazing, they've helped me so much in my life. If there's a self there and you identify with that, then you're going to experience these pleasant feelings. And if you allow the mind to experience those, it's only a matter of time before it swings to the other side when somebody says, you're the most horrible teacher I've ever encountered. I can't believe that you teach that. Are you serious that this is what you teach? Because if you allow the mind to experience those pleasant feelings based on the self-image and the self-identity, then it's only a matter of time because of impermanence that you're going to hear negativity about the self-image or self-identity. So the Buddha teaches you to eradicate this concept of a self where the mind is falsely identifying with this physical body and with this mind as being the self. Or the mind is falsely identifying with this self-image and all of this self-identity. And when it thinks that this is who you are as a person, right, I'm a dad, I'm a son, I'm a teacher, I'm a this, I'm a that, I'm a that. When you identify with all of these things, then the mind is going to essentially become discontent when it hears either agreeable things, it's gonna experience pleasant feelings, or when it hears disagreeable things, it's gonna experience painful feelings. So as part of this path, you eventually get to the point where you eradicate this false concept, this mistaken belief that there is a true self here. And you start to realize the only thing that's truly here is just a physical body and a mind. And these two things have come together for this existence. And when this life is over, the physical body is going to break up. The mind is going to separate from the physical body. And there's no more you. Because there was never a you to begin with. It's just the mind falsely thinking that there is a you. The way that you discover more and more that this is a truth is you take your finger and you point to, where are you? Where, where is Miranda or Donnie or Gloria or Marcia or Manal? Where are you? Right? Anastasio, where are you? Can you please point to you? And what some people will do is they'll point to the chest or the head or something like this. And what you see is, oh, you just pointed to a shirt, or you pointed to the skin. So if we get rid of that, where are you? Oh, so now you point to the ribs. Okay, let's get rid of the ribs. Where are you? Where is David? And then we point, oh, that's just the organs. That's some fluid. That's some blood. That's not David. That's just blood. So we get rid of all of that stuff. Where's David? David essentially doesn't exist david is just a label that was given to me at birth to essentially say that we're going to now call this physical body in this mind david and that's going to make it easy for everybody to know who we're talking about this being we call david because we couldn't say that you know this bag of fluid and bones and sinew and pus just came home from school we needed to say, David just came in from school, or David's going to come see you, or David's going outside, right? Our English language is not equipped to truly explain the experience that we're having. So we give these labels of Miranda and Bossum and Holly and Gloria and Donnie. And the problem that the unenlightened mind experiences is we start identifying with these labels as being who we are. And we start putting self-image behind that. We start putting self-identity behind that. And the mind starts holding on to this. And it becomes offended if somebody says something negative. And you experience these pleasant feelings if you hear something agreeable or pleasant. So this all needs to be eradicated from the mind as you progress on this path so let me just pause here and see if anybody has any questions on the three universal truths
2: hey david it's not so much about not having feelings and feeling numb it's about cultivating this lack of attachment and conditioning and feeling the joy that comes with that essentially
1: yeah it's training the mind to no longer form its inner feelings based on impermanent conditions so an enlightened mind isn't mute or isn't idle or uncaring, right? It's just that the mind's been trained to not allow itself to hold on to any conditions that's going to create inner feelings. So in a light of mind, if somebody tells a joke, they'll laugh and then their mind will come right back to the middle because they know not to hold on to that because it's only going to cause pain later if they allow the mind to hold on to anything. So, an elated mind's still going to laugh and joke and have fun. You'll have more fun because you won't be getting angry and frustrated and irritated all the time. You won't be spending two, three, four, five days being hateful or vindictive or resentful or jealous or holding on to some insignificant event that happened to you. So you'll actually have more fun. But the mind will be able to reside in the middle. And experience that peaceful, calm, serene, content mind with joy. And whenever there's a joke or something that happens, the mind will experience it and then let go of it right away. It won't hold on to it and expect for that to be
2: permanent. Thank you. That's all we have for
1: now. Okay. So as we move into talking about the four noble truths, let's make sure you understand what craving, desire, attachment is, because that's needed as well as the three universal truths are needed in order to understand the four noble truths. Craving, desire, attachment is a mental longing for something with a strong eagerness, the mind pulling in the direction of objects of its affection. You've experienced this. If you've ever had a certain pair of shoes or certain clothing or some event, or some person that you really wanted to see, and you felt the mind pulling towards that, and you just felt if you got that new pair of shoes, everything in the world would be perfect. Or you just craved for somebody to come to your house, or get an invitation to go to their house. And then when they came, you were really excited. Or if they didn't come, you were angry or upset. That's what we're going to talk about in the Four Noble Truths. But a craving-desire attachment, which is the core aspect of the Four Noble Truths, is where the mind has this longing or yearning, this strong eagerness, the mind pulling in the direction of the objects of its affection. You might also think of these as expectations or wants or holding or grasping because we oftentimes have certain wants and we put those expectations on others. And when they do what we want, then okay, we feel great. But if they don't follow what we say, then you get angry or frustrated or irritated because they didn't follow what you said. But that's you setting up your mind to fail because, as you'll see, this craving, desire, attachment is what's causing the discontentedness in the mind. So these expectations, once holding or grasping, are just other words that we use that are essentially describing the same aspect of the mind where it's longing for something, it's wanting something, it's yearning, it has this eagerness, it's pulling towards the direction of the objects of its affection. So moving into the Four Noble Truths, the first noble truth is that all unenlightened beings will experience discontentedness. So if you experience conditioned happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria, all of those pleasant feelings, and you feel the mind go up, and then it drops back down, this is because the mind is unenlightened. Or if you experience sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, stress, anxiety, that's because the mind is unenlightened. If you experience boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy, uncomfortableness, unsatisfaction, this is because the mind is unenlightened no big deal there's lots of unenlightened people in the world the goal is to learn and practice so that you can attain enlightenment so this first noble truth the way that i share it is as a way to just help you see that your mind is currently unenlightened if it's experiencing discontentedness the second noble truth is that this discontentedness the pleasant feelings the painful feelings the feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. This discontentedness is being caused by your own craving, desire, attachment, that mental longing with a strong eagerness, because the mind wants everything to be permanent when everything in the world is impermanent. So let's give an example here. Say you have children and your children decide to get married and they are going off into the world with their new partner. Oftentimes, people cry at weddings. Why? Because the mind's holding on, and it wants this child to be with you permanently. And when you are confronted with them leaving, the mind becomes discontent, where it becomes sad, or other discontent feelings come into the mind. It's the same exact thing when somebody dies, the death of a individual. When people are discontent or sad or grieving or sorryful, people say that it's actually love, but love doesn't cause discontentedness. Love doesn't cause sadness or irritation or anger or grief or sorrow. What it is, is the mind is craving, desiring, attached Wanting to hold on to this person permanently. And when it wasn't able to do that and the person died, the mind not understanding impermanence, the mind doesn't like this impermanence. So therefore, the mind becomes sorrowful, grieves, and has despair or misery when somebody around us dies. Same thing if you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend and you guys separate for some reason the mind becomes discontent, angered, sad, lonely, bored, right? Or if you guys are going out to do something, one person wants to do one thing, another person wants to do something else. If you get what you want, the mind experiences pleasant feelings, happiness, excitement. If you don't get what you want, the mind experiences sadness or anger or frustration. This is all being caused by the mind's craving, desire, attachment this longing with a strong eagerness, wanting things to be permanent. The elimination of this discontentedness is possible by eliminating the craving desire attachment, training the mind to let go, training the mind to understand impermanence that things are constantly changing, training the mind to no longer have this longing with a strong eagerness, using the techniques of the Buddhists in order to train the mind to be in the present moment and be able to let go, no longer longing for the objects of its affection, but just going through life and taking care of the things that we need to take care of, rather than trying to chase after pleasant feelings based on these impermanent conditions. So it's the elimination of craving, desire, attachment, the mind longing for something with a strong eagerness that it can then reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because it's no longer got this burning desire that I've just got to have this. I want this, or I expect these people to do these things. And then when you have that and you get what you want, the mind experiences pleasant feelings. When you don't get what you want, it experiences painful feelings. So the mind needs to be trained to understand impermanence and needs to train to reside in the present moment and be comfortable with letting go and not having these longings with a strong eagerness. The way that we do that is described in the fourth noble truth. The path to eliminating discontentedness is the eightfold path. These are eight steps that the Buddha teaches in order to train the mind and purify it called right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. As you train the mind along this path, you start clearing out all this longing with a strong eagerness, the mind becomes more steady. It becomes more stable. You clarify and purify the mind where you don't have this lack of clarity and focus that we have in the unenlightened state instead by training the mind and clearing all this stuff out the mind comes to the middle and you develop concentration you develop awareness you develop memory and focus right the mind can then reside peaceful calm serene, content with joy when it's in the present moment but if the mind's thinking about the past and all the harmful things that happened to you and all the things that you've done to other people to harm other people the mind can't be content because it's worried about the past. If the mind's in the future, worrying about the future or having fear, or anxiety or stress about the future, it can't reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because it's not in the present moment. It's worrying about the future. It's only when we train the mind to come into the present moment without craving, desire, attachment, without longing for something that it doesn't have that then it can reside perfectly content and joyful because it's content with what is, it's satisfied with what is. See, the challenge that we've experienced in life is that as we've grown up, whether it be in our families or our friends or associates, whether it's in movies, whether it's marketing or things that you see, the mind has been conditioned to think, that the goal in this life is to be happy and that you should be happy permanently. And the way to get happy is to make lots of money, get lots of wealth, and when you get that, then the mind's going to be happy. So this conditions the mind to chase after whatever it thinks is going to create happiness, whether it's money, whether it's friends, whether it's a certain job title or an occupation, whether it's a certain living situation, the mind chases after this happiness and it thinks the objects of its affection is what's going to create the happiness. It's almost like that next shiny object waiting around the corner is what's going to create that lasting happiness. And the mind chases after it and chases after it and chases after it. And if it gets it, then it experiences that temporary happiness a few weeks, a few days, a few months. But then eventually that condition wears off or it changes and the mind no longer experiences happiness anymore because the happiness was impermanent because it was based on some impermanent condition. And then when that happiness leaves us, then the mind moves to sadness, anger, or worse. And then the mind experiencing that, it starts to get another object of its affection, what's the next thing I can chase after? And if I chase after it and I get it, then that's what's going to create the pleasant feelings. This is almost like a dog chasing a cat or a dog chasing a rabbit. It just thinks if it gets that rabbit, it just invests everything it can and chases and chases and chases and chases and chases. And And then when it gets it, it might kill the rabbit and then it becomes unsatisfied with it. It doesn't even eat it. It just kind of like walks away from it, right? It just gets bored with the dead rabbit. This is what the unenlightened mind's doing because of the animal existences in the past is it's chasing after the objects of its affection trying to create that happiness based on that next new shiny object. But the goal in life isn't to create this lasting happiness. The goal is to be satisfied with what is and train the mind to be content with what exists, not chasing after the next thing, but being content with what's in the present moment. So let me see what questions you guys have here. And then we're going to move into talking about mental health and this modern mental health that we're looking at and how things are described in that discipline.
2: It seems we have no questions at this time, David.
1: Okay, so this is just a a nice little refresher for you guys and to lay some foundation for what we're going to talk about. So it's important to understand that as we move into talking about modern mental health discipline, that the brain is not the mind. And the mind is not the brain. The brain is this physical organ that is physical and it controls the physical body. The mind is not physical. You can't actually touch it. You can't even point to it and tell somebody where it is. Thai people would tell you that the mind is in the heart. Most Westerners would tell you that the mind is probably here. They will point to the head. And even other cultures, like in India, they will tend to tell you that the mind is outside the body. In reality, the mind is intangible. It's not a physical thing that can be touched but it's not the brain these two things are actually separate there's some connection between them just like this is a hand but if somebody cuts the hand the brain feels that and the mind feels that but the hand is not the brain and the hand is not the mind it's completely separate but there's a connection there through the nervous system right same thing with the brain and the mind They're two separate things, but there's some kind of connection between them. When people experience symptoms of sadness, stress, anxiety, or any of these feelings that we talked about, these painful feelings, these pleasant feelings, these feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, and they talk to people about these discontent feelings, they're labeled as being mentally ill. That because the mind is feeling stress, oh, this person's ill they're mentally ill, or because they're sad, they're mentally ill, or because there's anxiety, they're mentally ill. And what happens is in this medical discipline, there's typically a decision that people say the brain chemistry is off, and that's what's producing the stress or anxiety or the sadness. And now to fix that, let's introduce a chemical into the body that is going to change the brain chemistry, and that's how we're going to fix these feelings. But in reality, this is a misunderstanding of what's actually causing the painful feelings, the pleasant feelings, or the feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, because it's not the brain chemistry that's causing the problem. It's craving, desire, attachment. It's the mind wanting something, and if it gets it, it experiences pleasant feelings. And if it doesn't, then it experiences painful feelings. So introducing a chemical into the body isn't going to train the mind and give the mind wisdom to be able to see that and understand that. It's just going to change the brain chemistry and oftentimes suppress the mind and sedate the mind. The mind needs to essentially be trained. If you're going to fix the real issue, the real problem in the mind, the mind needs to be trained to let go. It needs to be trained to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. This mental longing with a strong eagerness that's producing the pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. Through that training, addressing the real true problem, then the mind can move to this mental state where it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy the chemicals that are being introduced into the body is not actually addressing the mind. You can't address the mind through brain chemistry because the mind is not the brain, and the brain is not the mind. There's some connection there, and there's some chemical things that are happening, but that's not the core and central problem. Moving on, let's just talk about a few minor examples before we go into some of the other examples that we have prepared to talk about. If you've ever experienced any childhood trauma, for example, there's people who have had verbal abuse as a child or physical abuse or sexual abuse or other traumatic events that have happened to you as a child growing up. The mind can oftentimes hold on to these experiences and as an adult with the mind holding on to those experiences, there can be significant sadness in the mind. And people will say that, okay, this person is depressed because they're experiencing all this sadness. So now they're mentally ill and we need to prescribe this medication and that's what's going to fix it, right? But that never fixes it because the mind still is holding on to these experiences as a child or a young adult or at other parts in your life, if you've had any kind of traumatic events, then the mind holding on to those traumatic events and reliving them is going to produce sadness because the mind hasn't been trained to let go. And it doesn't matter what medicine is introduced into the body, the mind still holding on is what's causing the problem. Another one that you may have heard about is bipolar disorder or manic depression. This is where the mind experiences sadness or deep sadness, and then it experiences this excitement or this mania. This is the mind switching back and forth between painful feelings and pleasant feelings. This is happening because of craving, desire, attachment. Oftentimes when somebody is experiencing what people call bipolar, there's oftentimes strong sexual cravings that go along with that. Or there could be shopping, where people really wanna shop and uh, spend money. They tend to spend money a lot. These are all cravings that are in the mind that are the person is chasing after pleasant feelings. And if you chase after the objects of your affection, for example, sex or shopping, then if the mind gets it, it experiences the pleasant feelings. But if it doesn't get it, then it experiences these painful feelings. And we're going to talk more detail about more specific examples in a moment. But just laying some groundwork here for you to see that if the mind is conditioned to believe that the true problem of these sadness and anger and excitement and elation is a chemical imbalance in the brain, then the problem that's being addressed with pharmaceuticals is going to be wrong view. The person's not going to be able to make their way out of those painful feelings or those pleasant feelings because the true problem that's the real problem isn't being addressed. Instead, they're trying to address it through brain chemistry Rather than understanding the wisdom of how the mind functions and that this mind is just untrained and the mind is holding on to things from the past or it's longing for the future. By not understanding that and trying to introduce chemicals into the brain, then this is going to produce wrong view and people are going to adopt the identity that now I am sick. Now I am mentally ill my brain is defective and I need to take this medicine for the rest of my life and I'm going to talk bad to people sometimes. I'm going to be sad. I'm going to be grumpy. I'm going to be frustrated. I'm going to be irritated. I'm going to have fears or anxieties. And this is all because my brain chemistry. This is all because the brain isn't functioning properly. That's wrong view. That's somebody who doesn't understand that the true source of the problem is this craving, desire, attachment. It's an untrained mind because there is no medication that can change somebody's intentions, their speech and their actions. It's not possible to introduce any kind of chemical that's going to change the mind long term to produce wholesome intentions, speech and actions that lead to better results in one's life the mind's going to keep spiraling into painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, as long as there's craving, desire, attachment there, as long as the mind doesn't understand right view, and it thinks that the true problem is brain chemistry. Some other things to think about is that If the problem that we're encountering in humanity and in civilization is that the brain is defective, then we would observe that all populations of people around the world would experience the same problems across all populations. So that means if there's a lot of depression, bipolar, schizophrenia, anorexia, bulimia, PTSD, ADD, ADHD in America, the UK, Australia, and these places, then if it's truly a defective brain, then that's a problem in the human body. That's a problem with the human species. And we would see that those same problems would be pervasive across all populations of people. So that means we would see that same problem in Thailand and China and Africa and European countries and South America, we would see these same problems in all of humanity. But that's not what we see. And this brain chemistry of these defective brains that people are being taught that exist, humanity and human mind couldn't have truly become unbalanced and defective in just a couple of decades. Because this whole modern mental health discipline that we have available to us today has really only kind of grown up in the last few decades, right? It's only come about recently. So it's very unproven and untested. And if defective brains is what we have going on in humanity, that when someone's sad, their brain is defective, or when they have anxiety, their brain is defective, or when somebody has suicidal thoughts, their brain is defective. Or when somebody lacks concentration, their brain is defective and now they're mentally ill, they're going to be that way permanently for the rest of their life. If that was the truth, then we would see that same thing in all populations. And it's not something that would have just cropped up in the last couple of decades. And now it's pervasive in the world. It's not like a virus that's spread. You can't catch bad brain chemistry from somebody else, right? Like if somebody has unbalanced brain chemistry, that can't be transferred to somebody else if that person's brain is truly defective. If this modern mental health practices that we have are truly helping, then we would expect to see the number of cases and the number of people being labeled as mentally ill, we would expect to see that decline. Because if There was this pervasive problem of defective brains in society. And then there's this new discipline that comes in and says, aha, we see the problem and we've got the solution. Now let us implement this solution. Well, once that solution is implemented, we should see that there's then a decline in the number of cases because people would be getting better from this new discipline that's come in. But that's not what we see what we see is that there's just been a proliferation of more and more and more and more and more things that people are saying are now mental illness. And there's more and more and more and more people that are being diagnosed as being mentally ill. When I was growing up as a child, if somebody misbehaved in school, and I did a lot of misbehaving, the focus was on the behavior that the child needed to learn to behave better. But somewhere along the line, we got to the point where this misbehavior is now a mental illness, and that is brain chemistry, and that's a defective brain. And if we introduce this medicine, that's what will fix it, right? So if this is what's truly going on, then we would see a decline in the number of cases because these new mental health practices would be solving the problem. If this was truly a real truth, that the brains of human beings are defective, then wherever we see these practices that are the most pervasive in the world, places like America, the UK, Australia, essentially Western culture, if these mental health practices was actually helping, then these people and populations of people would be the most mentally stable and mentally fit populations in the world. Is that what we see? Do we see that the mental health of where these disciplines grew up, where these disciplines were founded, where the most knowledge of these disciplines exist, where the most people are getting treatment for these illnesses, do we see that those populations of people are the most mentally stable and most mentally fit? I would say that that's not what we see. What we see in places like America is constant, massive amount of mass shootings where people are just going around and triggered and they're killing people, right? There's massive amounts of murder in a place like America. The anguish, the suffering that people are experiencing that drove them to doing that is real. It's a real, true problem, but the cause that it's brain chemistry that's doing that is not the truth. It's not brain chemistry. It's a lack of wisdom that even in the medical field, they don't understand the mind in the same way that the Buddha did. And because of that, we're now addressing a problem through a false understanding of what the true problem is. The true problem isn't the brain chemistry and medicine is going to fix it. Because if that's what the true problem is, then we would see those mass shootings going down. We would see them going down because the more and more medicines that are prescribed, the more and more people that are diagnosed, those things would start coming down. But that's not what we see. We see that they're actually increasing more and more and more. We're seeing more and more harm in the world. So in these places where they don't have the wisdom of the buddhist teachings and they lack the understanding of the three universal truths the four noble truths the eightfold path and all these other teachings that's where we see the most instability we don't have mass shootings here in thailand you know i think there was one last year right but you don't hear those things you don't even hear of murders here to hear about a murderer like once every six months it's like oh really there was a murder somewhere Wow, you don't really hear about that stuff. And what I should add to that is you don't see this pervasive belief that someone who's sad or angry or stressed or having anxiety, oh, that's a mental illness. They need medication. Instead, through practicing right view, we understand that, ah, this person has craving, desire, attachment. Their mind is having a longing with a strong eagerness they need to take responsibility for the condition of their mind. And through training the mind, their mind can gain more clarity and more focus, and they can gain discipline to be able to control their mind when they have this wisdom on board, right? But if we introduce medications, that's not getting to the real problem. And because there's no wisdom on board, then the mind can't function and make wise decisions. So I get angry. So let me just go out and shoot a bunch of people. And that's the way to solve this, right? That's the way to solve the anger is just to release it into the world. And that's because of a lack of wisdom. But here in Thailand and other places in the world that understand that it's the human mind that is lacking wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline, that through improving that, now A person with that wisdom, with that moral conduct, with that mental discipline can make wiser decisions in the world, and now we can get to the real problem rather than trying to address it through medication. Moving on here, a person can learn and practice these teachings and create this well-trained, this stable mind. As long as the mind resorts to medications thinking that that's going to ultimately solve the problem and not looking to bring wisdom into the mind, there's going to be this continual progression and this downward slide of mental health in the world. Through gradually learning these teachings and gradually ramping up one's life practice, the mind can become more peaceful, calm, serene, content with joy and eliminate medication. You can gradually start to eliminate this medication with the support of a teacher to help you build up your life practice, with the support of your family and your doctors to understand that that's what you're working towards, you can actually eliminate all of this expense and all of these side effects that come along with the medication because who really is interested in being relegated to medications for the rest of their life? There's a lot of expense, there's various therapies, there's lots of side effects associated with this. And this is bogging down a lot of minds from being liberated because they can't see what the real problem is because the medication is masking the true problem. As long as someone believes that they're sick and they're ill and the problem is brain chemistry, they're not going to ever get to a permanent solution because they're still practicing wrong view. It's not until they see right view and have that breakthrough that they'll be able to eliminate medications and move beyond it as you learn and practice these teachings if you're currently on medications or if there's people around you who are currently on medications you'll know when the right time is to start decreasing your medications because you'll feel the stability of the mind start to improve the more that you develop your life practice you'll feel differently than you've ever felt before better than anything that the medications could ever produce you'll feel more stability and the ability for you to make decisions and making wise decisions is what will improve the condition of the mind and the condition of your life let me pause here and see what questions you guys have about the things that i'm talking about so far and then after this we'll move into talking about very specific aspects of mental health and certain labels that are categorizing symptoms, connecting those over to the Buddhist teachings.
2: Yes, David. We have a question from Facebook, from Denise. Can a person still use medication until the mind is in training?
1: Yes, that's what will typically happen is that as someone builds their practice and their life practice and they ramp that up more and more, the mind will become more and more stable, more and more steady, more and more calm. And then when you feel the right time, you'll be able to slowly decrease the medications. And I can speak on this through experience because for 24 years, I was in the mental health discipline as a patient. I was taking medications and seeing doctors, could never get the help that I needed. And ultimately through the Buddhist teachings and seeing what goes on here in Thailand, I was able to eliminate all of that stuff. And what you'll notice is as your practice builds more and more, the mind will become more and more stable. And what I did is one of the medications I just got rid of really quickly. I just kind of went off of it pretty much with maybe a week or two transition of breaking the tabs in half and things like that. But I kind of just got off of it really quickly. And I felt pretty miserable for about three or four weeks having done that. But then I kind of got over the hump and I felt quite fine. And then the other medications that I was on, I slowly decreased them little by little, maybe taking a half a tab for like two weeks or a month. And then I did that. And then I took maybe like a quarter of a tab for a few weeks or a month. And then I went to the next medication. And what's really important as you do this is that you clean up your food supply and what you're putting into your body. If you're currently drinking coffee, for example, then there's this stimulant. There's this drug that's going into the body all the time that's exciting the mind and picking it up. And if you're using medication, that you might use sleeping medication to bring it back down because it's having trouble sleeping. So what would be really helpful is if you work on cleaning up any kind of products that you're putting into the body, like uh, caffeine is a big one, fluoride, MSG. If you uh, look at cleaning up your food supply, making sure that you're not eating a lot of preserved food, but you're eating natural, fresh food like vegetables and things like this. And if you're able to also gradually improve and eliminate eating meat, this would be really helpful as well. Because there's research where researchers have taken wild fish out of streams and places like America that are supposed to be really clean streams, and they found 191 substances, things like cocaine and antidepressants and other things like this. So even though we've all been taught and our mind has been conditioned to conform and eat meat, and that's what society has been doing for many generations, right now the water supply and the food supply and the environment is so polluted with people putting substances into the water, flushing them down the toilet, that even wild salmon being pulled out of streams in America have cocaine and antidepressants and other toxins in their flesh. And if you're eating preserved food, you're eating caffeine and MSG, or you're using fluoride, you're taking all of these substances into the body, the mind's going to be affected by that. So if you can clean up your diet, at the same time that you're building your life practice with meditation and other things, then your mind's gonna become ultimately more stable and you'll feel that, you'll know that for yourself. And then you can gradually start bringing down the medications as well. And then you'll be on a natural food diet where you're eating whole foods like rice and nuts and fruits and vegetables. And the body's got what it needs to maintain its health And you won't need these medications and you can eliminate all of the side effects that you're experiencing as a result of that.
2: We've spoken a bit about brain chemistry and is it accurate to say that brain chemistry can play a role in creating conditions and creating emotions potentially but without a well-trained practice we can't really consistently essentially I would say that the conditions of the mind will impermanence will always find discontent until we do train the mind regardless of what chemistry
1: is at essentially yeah so th- there's definitely some connection between this mind and the, and the brain so when somebody's sad without being a scientist without being a doctor when someone's sad I have no doubt that they can probably pick up that there's certain a chemical makeup in the brain based on sadness that's in the mind or when somebody's excited, I'm sure there's a certain brain chemistry that goes along with that, and that can be observed with the technology that we have nowadays. But we can't introduce any kind of substance into the body that's going to permanently eradicate the chemicals in the brain, because it's not the brain chemistry that's producing the sad feelings. It's the sad feelings that are creating the brain chemistry. And what's creating the sad feelings? It's the craving, desire, attachment. So we have to go back to the root of the problem. So if we address the brain chemistry and keep messing around with this brain chemistry, that's not going to train the mind to have wisdom and to make better, wiser decisions and train it to eliminate these sad feelings. So by going back to the root cause, which is the craving, desire, attachment, that's where we really truly solve the
2: problem. Thank you,
3: David. I'll turn it over to Bassem now for any Zoom questions. Thanks, James. Uh, We have a question from Donnie. He says, what is the function of the mind and how does it relate to our physical body?
1: So the mind is essentially our consciousness or our awareness, right? This is completely separate from the physical body, but these two things come together in order to create a being or an existence. And... Without a consciousness, the body would just be dead weight. The way the Buddha explains it is it's just four elements. He explains it as earth, wind, water, and fire. He classifies the body into these four elements. And then some people talk about the fifth one, which is space. But essentially what we've got here is just physical form. Uh, We've got these fluids, we've got this tissue. We've got skin. We've got all these different things in the physical body. And the consciousness is here to create awareness. And we use the physical body in order to interact in the world. So this is why I say the mind is the boss. The body is the employee. The body is just following what's in the mind. So if you've ever been a kind of person that rushes around and goes here and goes there and goes here and goes there, that's because the mind is so overactive. The body's the employee. The body's just following what's in the mind. So if the mind is really overactive and energetic, then you're going to go here and you're going to go there and you're going to do this and you're going to do that and you're going to do this. You're going to do that because the mind is the boss and the body's the employee. But when you slow the mind down and the mind becomes really peaceful, then you'll see the movements in the body will become the same way. You'll see a person's speech will become very clear very easy to understand because the mind is very calm and they can think through each individual thought that they have and then they use the body to communicate it so the body is just here to kind of give the consciousness the ability to interact in this world because the consciousness or the mind is intangible it's non-physical but by being part of this physical body i can now take what's in the consciousness and I can take those thoughts and those ideas and those feelings, and now I can interact and experience through this physical body in the world.
4: Thanks, teachers. No more questions for now.
1: Okay, so let's look at some of the common mental illnesses that are being classified as mental illnesses. And essentially, what's happened is when these first started coming out, there was this very thin little book that had a couple of labels that were called mental illnesses, and they said, you know, if you have depression, and these are kind of like a category of symptoms that you have, you might have any of these 20 symptoms, and you don't have all of these 20 symptoms, but you may kind of have these kind of symptoms. But from one person to the next, what they experience is very different. But over time, this book has gotten larger and larger and larger, categorizing more and more things. As being mental illness. For example, when I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, one of the symptoms at that time was that you're more friendly with people than normal. This was one of the symptoms, that if you tend to have a certain personality and then you started to become more friendly than normal, this was because of bipolar that your mind is mentally ill because you're being more friendly than normal, okay? So there's all these different symptoms that are categorized as being mental illness, and they're just labels. So if you know anything about some of these mental illnesses, then you can connect these to the Buddhist teachings. For things like ADHD, this is an abbreviation for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, And then there's ADD, which is Attention Deficit Disorder. So essentially, someone who's been labeled as ADHD or ADD, their mind can't focus. They don't have concentration. There's an overactive mind. And this is often identified when someone is a child. When they're 8 years old, 10 years old, 12 years old, they can't sit in class, they can't focus on what the teacher is teaching so when the teacher notices this in some cultures they're sent to the doctor and oh this person has attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or attention deficit disorder they can't concentrate they can't focus so now we need to give them this medication so that they can focus well what the real problem is here is not the brain chemistry the problem is is that the mind is untrained it doesn't have the ability to concentrate and focus. There's a mind that is craving mental stimulation so that if they're in class with the teacher and the mind becomes bored because it's used to playing toys and it's used to playing on video games and it's used to watching TV all the time, it's used to all this stimulation. Well, then when it gets into a more sterile environment, like a classroom setting, the mind can't focus because the mind is craving that mental stimulation, and it's lacking the concentration and the ability to focus on what's going on. And there's no pill that's going to change this. The mind needs to be trained how to be calm, how to be peaceful, and how to have concentration. Anorexia, bulimia, or all these different eating disorders, these usually come from a person who see certain images of beauty, and they start identifying with these images, and now they look at their body, and they crave that certain image, that self, that self-image, that self-identity. The mind craves to look the way that the magazines look, or look the way that these professional actors look. Or they might hear people tell them, oh, you're so fat, or you're so ugly, right? And then this conditions the mind to start craving and wanting to eliminate this image that they currently have because they experience these painful feelings of hearing negative things from people or looking at magazines and they don't look that way. They have this craving to be looking the same way as the magazines. And now the person develops this eating disorder where they're either making themselves vomit or not eating very much because they're trying to get really, really skinny to be able to look the same way as the magazine looks. But in reality, what people don't understand is that magazine has been photoshopped, and that's not actually the way that person looks anyway. And what the mind doesn't understand is not everybody's gonna look the same because of impermanence. There's going to be some people who are very thin. There's going to be some people who are chunky and a little bit chubby or maybe even obese. And there's going to be some people who are more of a moderate weight. And this is just the diversity of body types because of impermanence, that there's no fixed permanent state of the physical body and people's bodies are going to all look different. But as long as the mind is identifying with that self-image or that self-identity, and it craves to look the way other people look, or it craves to no longer hear people call you fat, then that's going to create these eating disorders where people are now craving to look a certain way. And there's no amount of medication that's going to change the mind from thinking that way. As long as that person falsely believes that their body needs to look the same as others then they're going to continue to have image issues with how they look and they're going to crave to look a different way and they're going to resort to whatever they need to in order to look that way whether it's an eating disorder or plastic surgery or certain devices to shape the body and make it look one way or another this craving desire attachment to look a certain way is going to be pervasive in the mind. And it's going to keep pursuing this false reality of what people think beauty looks like. At one time, people used to like big hips and big thighs and these kind of things. And then later, all of a sudden society decided that it's thin people that are beautiful. And then in some cultures where people's skin are very white, they tell you that, okay, if your skin's tan, you look more beautiful. So then everybody runs out to go tan the skin in tanning salons. But in a place like Thailand, where everybody's tan, people teach that it's white skin that looks more beautiful. So there's all these places where you can go and you can whiten your skin here in Thailand. They don't have tanning salons. They have whitening salons to whiten the skin. This is where the mind falsely thinks that this physical body is who you are, and it's forming its image of itself through what the physical body looks like, and it's craving to look differently than it looks. And not only can you experience these mental illnesses that people are saying are mental illness, but in reality, what it is is just the mind craving to look a different way. If you eliminate the craving, desire, attachment, then the mind can be trained to just be satisfied with what is, that this is the physical body that I've got, and I'm just going to focus on training the mind, developing wisdom, cultivating wisdom, making wise decisions in the world, and this physical body doesn't define who I am. If the mind has anxieties, there's all these different anxiety disorders that people say, if you have anxiety, then you're mentally ill. But in reality, what anxiety is, is it's typically anticipation of the future, of some future event, or being fearful of some future event or situation or some outcome. So because the mind is having this craving, this longing with a strong eagerness, this object of its affection in the future, the mind gets this anxiety and it starts to have this anticipation of this future event, situation, or outcome, or maybe even fear. And if the mind is trained to be in the present moment and not have that longing with a strong eagerness, then it doesn't experience the anxiety. As soon as the mind lets go of that future event and resides in the present moment, then it can experience peacefulness. But the mind doesn't understand. The unenlightened mind doesn't understand what it's doing and it will experience all this anxiety, and it goes to a doctor, and then all the doctor has is medications, but it doesn't truly address the real problem, which is the craving-desire attachment. We talked a little bit about bipolar disorder, but oftentimes when people are diagnosed with bipolar disorder, what you'll see is you'll see constant sexual cravings, You'll see craving for material possessions. You'll see this craving for excitement. And the mind oscillates from these pleasant feelings to painful feelings to feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. And it can bounce up and down even within the same day or over significant periods of time. And as long as there's these cravings in there and the mind keeps chasing these pleasant feelings, then the mind's going to seem like it's got this mania or it's on this pathway to create this excitement in the mind. And then when it can't get that excitement, then it's going to crash and it's going to experience the painful feelings. Same thing with depression. If the mind is trained to think that all these life is about is chasing happiness. Well, when the mind experiences a little bit of sadness, it becomes even more sad because it's not happy. And the mind keeps wanting happiness. But the more it wants happiness, it keeps getting sadder and sadder. And oftentimes, this is from the mind holding on to past traumas or past events or expectations of the future. And it keeps experiencing painful feelings based on its cravings. So if you have a craving for your husband or your wife to be a certain way, and you want them to be a certain way, and they're not that way, you might become sad. Or disheartened or if you have a certain loved one that's in your life and you really are close with this person and they die the mind can become very sad it experiences painful feelings because the mind is craving for this person to be permanent and there's no pill that somebody can take to get rid of these sad feelings Because the real problem is that the mind lacks the wisdom to understand that it's causing its own painful feelings. If you've ever heard about hoarding, there's people that have these cravings for material possessions and they will. Go out and shop and they might shop and they buy one thing, and that feels pleasant and they bring that home and then they go out and buy two or three things. And they bring that home and it feels satisfying, but that doesn't feel satisfying anymore. So they go out and buy four, five, six things, and they bring that home and that pleasant feelings wear off and they go out and buy more things and more things. Or they hoard animals or they hoard possessions like cars or houses or any kind of material possessions. This is the mind craving material possessions. And oftentimes, once again, they're labeled as mentally ill. They're giving medications, but it never solves the problem because the real problem is that the mind is having this craving, thinking that if I buy three things today, that's what will create the pleasant feelings. But then when you buy the three things and you bring them home over a couple of hours or a couple of days, those pleasant feelings are gone because those pleasant feelings were based on this impermanent condition of purchasing these two or three things. And now when those pleasant feelings fade, now the person has to go buy three or four things. And now they bring those home and then those feelings fade and they have to go out and buy more things. This is how someone becomes a hoarder because the mind is chasing the pleasant feelings and there's no medication that's going to fix that there's things that people call insomnia, that they say, okay, this is a mental illness. And essentially what insomnia is, is when you can't sleep or you have difficulty sleeping. But what you you need to understand in terms of sleep is that there's no such thing as a permanent sleep schedule. You can't fall asleep at the same time every night and wake up at the same time every night and get the same exact number of hours of sleep every day. That would be permanence. Some days you're going to fall asleep earlier. Some days you're going to fall asleep later. Some days you're going to fall asleep and you're going to wake up in the middle of the night. And then you're going to have difficulty going back to sleep. Some days you're going to wake up in the middle of the night and be able to fall back to sleep pretty easily. This is all impermanence. The mind can't permanently go to sleep and stay asleep and then wake up. It can't do that because that would be permanence. But if the mind is craving for sleep and wanting to have a certain sleep pattern, and it expects that there should be a permanent fixed sleep schedule. Well, when the mind doesn't do that because of impermanence, now you're going to think that you're mentally ill, that you're experiencing insomnia, and you need pills in order to get you to sleep. But then you take those pills and you fall into sleep, and now you wake up, and now the mind's groggy. It's sleepy. It's still experiencing the effects of that sleep medication. So now you take caffeine in order to pick the mind up and make it excited and make it awake. And now because you had caffeine during the day, you have trouble sleeping at night. And now you have to take medication to sleep at night. So the problem just keeps going on and on and on and on because the person is messing around with the brain chemistry rather than dealing with the real problem, which is the mind just doesn't understand that you can't have a permanent fixed sleeping schedule where you fall asleep at the same time and wake up at the same time every day. In addition to that, as somebody starts to awaken the mind towards enlightenment, you're going to notice that you need less and less sleep. So if you've been meditating If you've been learning these teachings, if you've been practicing these teachings for six months, a year, two years, and you're noticing that you don't need as much sleep, that you're falling asleep later and later, or you're waking up earlier and earlier, this is completely normal for a mind that is awakening, that you're going to need less and less sleep. But if your mind doesn't understand that and you start sleeping four hours a day, four hours a day, four hours a day, you're going to think something's wrong. But what you've got to look at is you got to look at, do I have energy? Do I have the ability to function in the day? Is my mind alert? Am I able to talk with people? Am I able to drive a car? Am I able to go to work and perform at work? Am I able to function in society? Sure, you can function on four hours, on six hours of sleep. Maybe some days you sleep eight hours. Some days you sleep four. Some days you sleep seven. Some days you sleep ten this is impermanence. This is the way that the body and the mind works. But if the mind craves to sleep at the exact same time every day, then it's going to become discontent and think that there's some mental illness. And as you see your sleep schedule start to shrink, where you're no longer sleeping for 8, 10, or 12 hours a day, and you start sleeping for a solid 6, or 4, or maybe sometimes 2 hours, and sometimes 6, and sometimes... Four and sometimes seven, and you start noticing this. This is completely normal when you start training the mind, and the mind starts awakening. I have some others to talk about here too, but I see there's a hand up, so I'd like to just give you a chance to ask any questions that have come in since we've been talking about these. So I'll see what questions you guys have in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. You can just raise your hand electronically, or put your comment into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and our moderators will see that and get your question asked during the
2: class. Sure. let's get to Miranda.
3: So the first question, uh, having been diagnosed with ADHD when I was uh, 16 years old, the choice was made to not take medication for that, but instead to learn behavioral and lifestyle habits to help with those symptoms. Um, It's been observed, though, that those were merely coping mechanisms and didn't cure or really deal with the root of the issue, which I understand now is lack of right concentration. It's also been realized that meditation has lessened or solved a lot of those symptoms because of it cultivating right concentration. Um, Are there any other practices in Buddhism to further cultivate right concentration or will meditation and effort continue to gradually improve those symptoms in the mind?
1: Yeah, the more that you train the mind and continue on the path, clearing out craving, desire, attachment from the mind, the mind will become more concentrated. So it's not the meditation itself that is actually creating the concentration. We need that to be there in order to create the concentration, but it's actually the elimination of craving, desire, attachment that creates the concentration. Because as long as the mind is carrying around craving, desire, attachment, it's going to want this, and it's going to want this, and it's going to look here, and it's going to look there, and it can't be focused here and concentrated. So the meditation and practicing generosity and also observing your cravings and actively working to eliminate them, the way I talked about the red light on the dashboard of the car and actively working to eliminate those, the more you eliminate those from the mind, you'll find the stability and the concentration and the steadiness of the mind where you can just be content, just right here in the present moment. And the mind doesn't want to be over here or over there or over here because that's what's happening. This label of ADHD or ADD essentially what it is 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 just a person whose mind is lacking concentration their mind is having craving desire attachment to be over here and over there and over here and over there it can't just reside in the present moment so the more that you train for the mind to be in the middle and doing all the teachings of the buddhas that the mind will eliminate this craving desire attachment and be more content and stable in the present moment and that's when the concentration will come through more and more
3: okay so if I understand correctly it's not just simply meditation it's also practicing every part of the noble eightfold path that will continue to decrease the symptoms of that and cultivate better concentration getting to right concentration
1: exactly it's the whole eightfold path because for example like let's just say somebody wasn't practicing right speech, let's say they interrupted people, they spoke lies, they were harsh, they spoke unbeneficially, unpurposefully, they had a mind of hate, they were blameful. Let's say they weren't practicing right action. Let's say they were killing beings, they were stealing, they were having sexual misconduct. All of this is weighing on the mind. As you go through life, that all these things are weighing on the mind, all this harm that's being put out into the world the mind is aware that it's doing this and it becomes very muddled and the mind kind of implodes on itself. And when you're in a situation where you need concentration, the mind's over here worried about this, that, or the other thing, or it's fearful about this, that, or the other thing. And by training the mind on the entire Eightfold Path to have that wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline, the concentration comes in because you don't have to worry about what you said to person A or person B or person C because you never lie. You always tell the truth and you don't ever have to worry about if you told the truth or not. And if you're not having sexual misconduct, you don't have to worry about if your partner is going to catch you or not. Uh, If you're not killing and you're not stealing, you don't have to worry about the police or the law or people coming to harm you The mind can be very fearful when it's doing these things. So when you eradicate the unwholesome conduct, then the mind can be at ease because you know you're not causing harm to others. So the mind can be at ease. And that comes through the wisdom. And then as you work on your mental discipline throughout the rest of the Eightfold Path, then the mind comes into more clarity. And that's where the concentration Becomes more and more profound, but you need to develop that over two, three, four years and then continue to develop it your whole life. Even when the mind is enlightened, no longer experiencing discontentedness, with continued meditation and continued training, the mind is actually going to become more enlightened. So when we talk about that fourth stage of enlightenment as an otter hunt and being enlightenment, okay so let's just say somebody eliminates discontentedness for two or three years and we could consider this person enlightened well as they continue to practice their mind actually becomes more and more and more enlightened even though there's no more stages beyond the fourth stage of enlightenment the mind just becomes more and more wise more and more awake more and more concentrated so this is why if you never convince yourself you're enlightened even though you know you've eradicated discontentedness, that the mind will actually continue to evolve and continue to ascend to higher and higher degrees of enlightenment or higher and higher degrees of concentration.
2: As we talk about the labels, David, Mm -hmm. would you say that there's a particular danger in labeling and conceptualizing these mental phenomena simply because they can empower that phenomenon and lead to greater harm than simply the emotions or thoughts would have on their own.
1: Yeah, because see, what happens here is, you know, patients like me, I go in to see a doctor. This person is someone that we respect. We're all taught to respect. They hold a position of authority. They're wearing a white jacket. They've got all these degrees all over their wall. They've got nurses and this beautiful office and everything else. And this person tells you your brain is defective and you've got these mental illness and there's this label assigned to this individual. And now there's this course of treatment of medications that you're going to take for the rest of your life. This can be really damaging to any being. I was 20 when this happened to me. But imagine an eight-year-old or a 12-year-old or 16-year-old or somebody even younger, this experience this really damages the mind. Now the mind adopts this label and kind of wears this label. And that almost becomes part of the self-identity and the self-image to the point where some people, when they hear me teaching this, they get utterly angry. They get mad because they identify with being bipolar or they identify with being ADHD or ADD, and that's part of their identity of who they are, and they don't want to let that go. Uh, So when we start labeling things, it actually creates more difficulties, not just mental illnesses, but this person's African American, this person's Asian, this person's Caucasian, this is a Christian, this is a Buddhist, this is a Muslim, this is a Hindu, you can go Republican, Democrat, all the different political systems around the world, you know, labeling people now with all these labels, that's a real burden to carry around. And now we're taught that we should like these people and hate these people, or we should not respect these people and we should respect these people. This is very taxing to the mind to have to navigate this world of all these labels. So if you look at true reality and you just see that these labels that people have come up with and they're assigning a bunch of symptoms a bunch of experiences that people have, and they're saying, aha, that's this label. If you get rid of the label and you just look at the underlying symptoms, I can explain to you how you can resolve all of these symptoms that are being labeled as a mental illness. I can explain how to resolve all of these through the path to enlightenment, the Eightfold Path. There's no mental illness that I've seen yet that I can say that would not be able to be resolved through the Buddhist teachings, except for maybe something like dementia, where there's been physical changes to the brain, and that person's mind is now in a condition that they can't even take in maybe information and retain it. But if somebody trains in these teachings earlier in life, an enlightened being is never going to experience dementia, for example, because... The structures of the brain are never going to get into that condition so any of these things that we're being told are mental illnesses it's stress it's anxiety it's sadness it's frustration it's irritation it's anger it's a craving for looking beautiful it's a longing for the future and anticipating some future outcome it's holding on to past experiences like ptsd holding on to past traumatic events. It's wanting your sleep schedule to be a certain way. It's craving material possessions. It's craving sex. It's craving excitement and pleasant feelings. All of these things can be eradicated from the mind through the path to enlightenment when you gain the wisdom to understand what's really causing these. And we can get rid of all these labels and just look at, well, what's the real condition of the mind? Let's resolve this. Even something like schizophrenia or multiple personality disorder. I've worked with people like this that are hearing voices. And these voices are essentially communication from other realms, heavenly realm and the afflicted spirit realm and the hell realm. And people who are labeled as schizophrenic, their mind is somewhat awake and they're able to hear voices from these other realms or a multiple personality disorder. People are observing their past lives, and they're seeing when they were a child in a past life or other existences, and they're recalling those memories. But if you've been told that you only have one life and that's all you have, when you start hearing these voices and you start observing past lives, this can shake you up because you think you're crazy, because you hear these things and you see things that other people don't see and when you start talking to certain people they're like oh you see a being sitting over there yeah i see a being sitting over there oh this person's delusional we need to give them medication but if you talk to somebody like me and someone's like oh i can see a divine being sitting over there on the chair yeah it makes sense Uh, certain people can see that and that's part of the mind awakening Oh, I hear these demonic beings sometimes trying to influence me to do certain things. Yeah, that's what they do. That's what the hell realm does. And that's what the afflicted spirits do is they try to influence unwholesome behavior. And until you train the mind to become stable and steady, those beings are going to continue to try to influence you. And it's as you progress on this path, developing stability of mind, that those voices actually go away. But taking medication isn't going to get rid of those voices. Those voices are going to still be there because it's these demonic beings and these afflicted spirits that are trying to influence harmful behavior and unwholesome behavior. They're trying to create hell on earth is what they're trying to do. And they've been pretty successful at it so far. But now what we're doing as part of this path is we're like, no, 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 we're not interested in being unwholesome we're interested in doing wholesome things. And as we do, there's going to be heavenly beings that are around you. And you may experience that. You're not going crazy. It's just that the heavenly beings will uh, guide you and they will provide guidance along the path. Or if you start observing past lives, this is your past life. This isn't a separate personality that you should believe that you are multiple people. You are just one being in this life, but you're having memories of past lives. And if this was communicated to people that are experiencing multiple personality disorder and what we're calling schizophrenia, if they understand it and the wisdom and they start seeing the truth for themselves, then they can train the mind to move beyond this and let go of the past memories of their past lives. And they can... train the mind to become more stable so that these beings from the other realms aren't invading their mind the way that a schizophrenic person experiences.
2: It does seem that there's a tendency to incorporate these labels into ourselves until they become, or we imagine them to be a solid part of ourselves and we cling to them. And it can oftentimes be a crutch and we feel disempowered, whereas it seems that the teachings are all about actually empowering us instead.
1: Yes, that's what the Buddhist teachings are doing, because what the the mind of modern society is doing is we have this kind of ego, right? We have this pride, this arrogance, thinking that anything that's gone on in the past isn't as good as what we're doing now, because in the past, they rubbed sticks together to light fire, and they must, be, they must have been so stupid, right? No, they weren't stupid. It's just that's all that existed during that time. They didn't have... modern advances that we have now where we can create fire in an instant but we wouldn't be able to create fire in an instant if somebody didn't rub sticks together however many thousands of years ago so we're building on that wisdom we're building on that knowledge as a humanity and now we're able to create fire instantly but we look at what they did in the past with this ego and this arrogance looking down sometimes on civilizations of the past thinking that what they did was must have been so horrible. And we're so much smarter. This new thing is so much better. So now we're craving instantaneous results. So, oh, I feel stressed. I don't like that feeling. Give me a pill. Oh, now I can feel the effects of the pill. Or, oh, I'm having anxiety. Let me take that pill and see if I can get that to go away really quickly right? In modern society, we want quick results. We want the instant fix. Oftentimes, we're not interested in doing the hard work to train the mind and move beyond these feelings and train the mind to not experience these unwelcome feelings. We actually want an instant fix right now. And that's not the way that the mind works. And when you understand that and you understand that the mind needs gradual training to experience gradual Progress on this path, then you understand, aha, this is going to be a two, three, four, five year thing. But as I progress, it's going to be a permanent solution. I'm not going to be relegated to this medication for the rest of my life. I'm not going to be experiencing these side effects for the rest of my life. I'm not going to go around continuing to wander in the world, not knowing how to make decisions and feeling like I'm lost. And wandering in this world, I'm going to instead spend the next two, three, four, five years building wisdom of how to make wise decisions and create stability in the mind. And as I do that, that's going to be a permanent solution that truly solves the problem rather than being dependent on this medication and still lacking wisdom and still wandering around in the world, not truly knowing if you're coming or going because your head's spinning from all this medication that we're taking.
2: And perhaps it's worth mentioning that there are entities in society, like pharmaceutical companies that have financial incentive to keep us on that constant treadmill of medication rather than a permanent solution such as enlightenment.
1: Yeah, there's a certain amount of greed that goes into creating these disciplines and keeping them around. You know, it wasn't more than about 100 years ago that when somebody had any of these symptoms that we're talking about, they were put in straitjackets, they were trucked off to mental hospitals, drilling holes in people's heads, and they were trying to do lobotomies and things like this. Well, when that got to be too gruesome and too ugly, and people weren't really liking that, there wasn't really good PR around that, then these medications came out and it was, okay, now let's start putting people on medication. So there's a certain amount of greed and incentive that way. But there's also a massive number of people out there that truly believe what they're doing is helping society. They truly believe because they went to school, they went to biology, they got their Bachelor's, their master's, their PhD, their doctorate. They've got all these uh, disciplines in the universities teaching that this stuff is what we need to do in order to help society. But people haven't stepped back and looked at it from afar the way that I shared, and I'm just going to share it again: is that if these mental health disciplines were helping, we would see a decline in mental health cases. Because, aha, we spotted a problem 20, 30, 40 years ago that people are becoming mentally ill. We've got the solution. It's medication. Let's implement that. So we should start seeing a decline in mental health cases. But that's not what we see. We see a proliferation. If these mental health disciplines are truly working, then the population of people where these mental health disciplines are most vibrant and most widely practiced, we would see that population of people being the most mentally stable people on earth because they're taking these medications, because they're using these mental health disciplines. So their mind should be utterly stable because this mental health discipline is working. But that's not what we see. We actually see it getting worse and worse and worse. So when you look at it from afar and get rid of the belief in what people are telling us and what people are conforming to. And when you look at it from afar and you say, well, what's really happening? Well, we can see the evidence that things aren't getting better. And these mental health disciplines, while the people truly feel and believe that they're doing the right thing, it's because what they're doing is based on a false premise. It's based on a knowing of true reality, that the problem is brain chemistry. Brain chemistry isn't what produces sad feelings. It's the sad feelings being produced by craving-desire-attachment that's affecting the brain chemistry. So we've got to go back to the root problem, which is the craving-desire-attachment. Fix that, eliminate the sad feelings, and now the brain chemistry is going to be just fine.
2: And it seems, David, that especially as we look at Western societies where mental illnesses are so prevalent, these are societies that are in many ways dictated and driven by greed. And we can imagine that it presents many stressors to a mind that is already unenlightened, and it can really facilitate this huge epidemic that we've seen.
1: Yes, it's a downward spiral because the more people believe that happiness comes through material wealth, you go out and you push yourself, you work really hard, you all this stuff, you grind and grind and grind to make all this money, you get $50,000 a year. That wears off. You get seventy-five. that wears off. 100, 125, 150. And people keep telling you the more money you make, the happier you should be getting, but you don't. You just keep spending more. And what happens is the further you go down that path of keep chasing the money and material gain, the stress and anxiety becomes more and more. And then people just pop, right? So these Western countries that are chasing material wealth, they're very rich. They're very wealthy. They have a lot of money, but they actually have a lot of stress and a lot of anxiety and a lot of problems with mental health because there's so much craving baked into the culture. They're craving material wealth. They're craving beauty. They're craving big house and these things. Here in Thailand, people don't do that. For one way or another, Thai people don't really have much money because the economy doesn't turn over as quickly. So if somebody's sad, you talk to your parents, you talk to your big brother, your big sister, you go to the temple, you talk to the monks, you talk to the elders in your village, and people help you. And people give you support. And they show you through the wisdom of these teachings, how to improve the condition of your mind. And now you know the truth, and you fix the mind permanently. So because the Thai people lack the material wealth, but what they have is they have all these people that are willing to share their wisdom, and they gain that wisdom, and then rather than baking craving desire attachment into the culture and pushing everybody to accomplish material wealth, instead there's this wisdom that's baked into the culture, and that's what people learn, And they learn that material wealth isn't what's going to create ultimate happiness, that material wealth isn't what's going to create peacefulness. You can go into these villages that are dirt roads. We would probably consider them wooden shacks. And the people are smiling, and they're so pleasant, and they're so peaceful, and they're so kind, they're so joyful, they're helping each other, they're sharing with each other, nobody goes hungry in the village whatsoever, everybody's helping and contributing with each other, and they don't have any money, they don't really have any material wealth, and this is the thing that really shook up my mind when I came to Thailand the first time, is that I was told all those years for 27 years that it was material wealth that would lead to happiness. And I had all of that. At one time, I was making $150,000 a year as an employee. And then when I was running my own businesses, my businesses were making close to a million dollars a year. And I was bringing home a good chunk of that. But then when I came to Thailand, I noticed that these people in this village that had very little were actually so much more peaceful and so much more friendly and so much more joyful than I ever was or had ever experienced. And I was like, whoa, something isn't right here. It just doesn't compute because my mind has been taught that it's material wealth that leads to all that. But here's people that aren't wealthy in terms of material wealth, but they're very wealthy in terms of wisdom and that's what's leading to their peacefulness and their joy and their contentment. They're just satisfied with what is. And when you understand this and you get off of that wheel of constantly running around the wheel, chasing material wealth, and you realize that that's not what's going to lead to ultimate peacefulness, then you can focus on what do you really need in this life And focus on your needs rather than craving these pleasant feelings and chasing after all these cravings.
2: It also seems that unless we're perfectly enlightened, which few of us are, that we're inevitably going to experience sadness and we're going to experience anger. But in the West, there's a certain aversion toward experiencing those. And do you think that just by recognizing impermanence and understanding that we are going to feel sad and that we are going to feel anger until we're enlightened, that? we can feel a sense of acceptance and comfort in those things rather than the aversion that seems to be the root of many of these mental illnesses.
1: That's a very wise thing you said, that last part, the the very first part, we'll talk about that in a second, but the last seven-eighths of what you just said is very, very wise because if the mind's been taught that there's this permanent happiness that you should be experiencing, and the way that you get that is through chasing material wealth when your mind is oscillating and experience sadness you're not going to like that you're going to want to try to get rid of it and this is where substance abuse comes in right using cocaine using heroin using meth using lsd or pcp or all these other substances alcoholism is the mind experiences these painful feelings don't like that i need this substance let me get to the pleasant feelings and then this is a downward spiral as well so if you recognize that the mind is going to experience these impermanent feelings of going up and down for a while, all the way up until the mind becomes enlightened, then yeah, that can be really liberating by itself. But rather than these big high swings of excitement and these really deep lows, as you train the mind more and more, that should temper and it should become less and less. You won't experience such highs and such lows. It becomes more and more impermanent. It's almost like one of those hearts monitors. It's like, boop, 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 right? And it just kind of like flattens out. And at that point, the person's dead, right? But here, if we use it to represent discontentedness, at that point, the person's enlightened because the mind is in the middle. So yes, what you just said was very wise. The first thing you said is until we're all perfectly enlightened. There's only one type of being that's perfectly enlightened and that's a Buddha. So everyone else can attain enlightenment and can experience this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, but it's only a Buddha who's going to be perfectly enlightened. But everyone else can still experience the same liberation of mind, they can still experience the wisdom. They can still experience the peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. They can still experience the concentration, the memory, the focus, the clarity of mind. But it won't be quite perfect enlightenment. It'll just be enlightened. The mind will just be enlightened and liberated by wisdom.
2: Thank you for that clarification, David. And before we move on, I thought I would ask Ronell again if he would like to ask his question live. Sure.
5: Hello. Actually, uh, I'm very grateful to see you. I take my respect uh, before asking my question. Actually, uh, mm-hmm. sir, I asked to you. I want to ask to you about uh, meditation according to Buddhist theory. Uh, you know that. Yes. How we uh, can we remove our negative talk, thoughts from our mind uh, when we uh, fall in mind our mind in under pressure? Uh, have any mm-hmm. tips and please. At uh, this entry permanently, uh, according to Buddha's rudery.
1: Okay, I think I'm understanding you, but if I don't quite answer your question, be sure to ask some follow-up questions. Okay, I would like to make sure I, I deeply understand what you're looking to communicate and give you a, a, an appropriate answer. So, as negativity comes into the mind, as unwholesome thoughts are coming into the mind, whether it's in meditation or it's outside of meditation, you should cut those off and let them go in breathing mindfulness meditation, if you're in meditation, you should be focused on the breath and that's the present moment. But when the mind moves to the past or the future, or you have these negative thoughts invade the mind, wherever you're noticing that, cut that off, let it go and come back to the breath. The breath is the present moment. You train that in meditation through breathing mindfulness meditation. And you do that every day, two or three times a day for 30 minutes or more. As the mind gets better and better of letting go and staying focused on the present moment the breath then in daily life as negative thoughts or unwholesome thoughts arise you'll get better and better at cutting it off cutting it off and cutting it off and essentially what you're doing is you're trimming back this wild bush if you think about the mind like a wild bush you're trimming it back further and further and further and cutting it back further and further and further eventually you'll get to the point where you will no longer experience the arising of negative thoughts because you've cut this bush back to the stump and it will no longer grow again. But it's a gradual diminishing of these negative feelings that happens over the course of developing your practice on the Eightfold Path. So there's no way to quickly, abruptly eliminate negative feelings. Instead, it's a gradual training of the mind through the Eightfold Path specifically with breathing mindfulness meditation, but all of the teachings of the Buddha that trim this mind back further and further and further to eventually be able to cut off and let go of all these negative thoughts. And then you've cut it back so far, the mind is so well-trained that the negative thoughts will never arise again. But you're going to still experience some negative thoughts along the way. But as you train, you should notice a gradual diminishing of these thoughts as your mind becomes closer and closer to enlightenment
5: Thank you sir uh, actually uh, when i feel in our mind uh, under pressure uh, is this uh, is this feeling uh, hijack our uh, physically uh, just like our uh, hijack our brain etc
1: the pressure that you're feeling is actually self imposed when the mind has craving desire attachment and it wants something really bad it's going to feel pressure. It's going to feel stress because it feels this yearning, this longing, this strong eagerness to get the objects of its affection. So the mind is putting this burden and this stress, this pressure that it's carrying around as a result of the craving, desire, attachment of wanting something. So when you train the mind to not chase after your wants, but instead just satisfy your needs, then the mind can be at ease because it's no longer chasing things, the objects of its affection, it no longer feels this pressure.
5: Thank you, sir. Uh, actually, I think uh, uh, I, I asked again, uh, sorry, I uh, asked to, uh, to you many questions, actually. Uh, actually, I want to, uh, about uh, meditation, uh, about the rules of Buddhist theory. Uh, 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 please tell me about uh, meditation, uh, uh following the buddha's theory uh, just like i think uh, when we uh, feel uh, when we feel under pressure actually when uh, uh, actually when we quarrel uh, to each other and then um, normally uh, in our mind has a negative thought and just like craving and etc so uh, actually when we fall in under pressure and feelings uh, craving just like uh, just like uh, under pressure feeling mind and negative thought so how many uh will uh, remove or overcome in this situation uh, just like in the adult uh, in the adolescent you know that at the young generation uh is the past main uh, things is that uh, the negative thoughts come here when uh, they involve a relationship you know that uh, when we involved a relationship to each other and then broke up. So in the situation, uh, when we manage this, uh, this condition uh, by maintaining, by uh, according to the meditation rules.
1: Yes, yeah, so what you're describing is different situations that are occurring in life that is creating discontentedness in the mind but the approach to solving the problem it isn't situational that you can't solve this situation in this situation in this situation like following a bunch of rules instead you have to step back and understand the bigger picture of what the real problems in the mind are it's craving anger and ignorance or unknowing of true reality it's these 10 fetters and when you understand these problems then you understand that the solution is actually a comprehensive path of training the mind and developing your life practice, that you can't just solve one situation and another situation. Because when you break up with a boyfriend or girlfriend and the mind feels angry, that problem is the same one when someone dies and you feel sad. Or when you're trying to get a new job and you don't get it, and then you feel frustrated and annoyed, it's actually all the same problem. So you're not able to solve the problem of the mind through solving the individual situations. What you're doing is you're solving the pollution or the root cause in the mind that's actually creating all these situations.
5: Thank you, sir, that's all. I, uh, I am grateful to you uh, to uh, give me uh, some questions.
1: Yeah, what I recommend mm-hmm. is that you download this book And if you have any challenges reading it, there's a book prior to this where there's an audio book. And you can use that one because you really need to take in the whole comprehensive approach that the Buddha shares. And that's what you'll be able to learn as you go through these books and take these classes uh, and stuff.
5: Actually, I briefly introduced myself. Uh, I'm from Bangladesh, you know that. uh, We are indigenous people here. So uh, my religion is Buddhism, you know that uh, in our, uh, state, in our, uh, district, uh, there have many pre uh, Buddhist monks, you know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, th- they, uh, told us about that meditation. Uh, when, uh, it, it is the, actually, it's a long, like a long process, uh, in our mind. Uh, actually, mm-hmm. uh, when I met, a Buddhist monk, uh, actually he, res- uh, he was describing about that, uh, when we get feeling negative thought, uh, they taught. Uh, they taught us in. Uh, uh, they taught. They stated about five uh, rules. Uh, in in uh, as for my ability, I am describing. The they, this he said that uh, when we uh, how we uh, actually how actually how we uh, fully feels in negative thought in our mind. And it's the souls and soulless condition. Uh, he described about, uh, he was describing uh, about that. Uh, uh, do not bad things. Do not bad things, uh, clear in mind, and uh, stay uh, peaceful, uh, etc. Three words call, uh, he said, me exactly, he described. But mm-hmm. I don't understand mm-hmm. about that. When we, uh, in our mind, uh, actually, um, in the our uh, in the generation uh, the young generation at present, you know that uh, I, I against uh, I against said about that. Uh, sorry for that. Actually, in the young generation, uh, when they involved to each other a uh, relationship, just like we call it love. So after uh, broke up, uh, after broke up, uh, they uh, they did not. Uh, do not know how to do, uh, how it's overcome uh, in this situation, uh, properly. So uh, in our country, uh, many incidents happen about that. Uh, When uh, they involved in love to each other and and, and then broke up, I think they are uh, actually suicide, suicide suicide, uh, for that. They they did not overcome. So I am... uh, i uh, You gave you got me uh, this answer properly. Thank you so that. Uh, that's all.
1: Okay, you take care. And as you need help, feel free to send me a message so that I can get you the links for the resources to learn from. Yeah, of
5: course, mm-hmm. sir. I asked uh, one question, just one. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, where are you from?
1: Originally, this body was born in America, in Washington D.C., but now I live in Thailand.
5: Yeah, of course. Thailand is a Buddhist country. I know that. Uh, how, do you, uh, how do you know about uh, Buddhism? Bradley. I think I said Bradley. I want to Bradley.
1: Uh, yeah, so, so this is something that we can discuss offline. So just send me a message and I will uh, answer your questions for you.
5: Yeah, of course. Uh, I'm sorry.
1: That's okay. I can see you're very interested. So I would like to help you. But I think it's best if we talk a little bit privately and then I can get you started learning the path. And then when it's time, we can have a a bigger discussion about some of the other things that you're interested to talk about.
2: Okay? Thanks very much to Ranao. And let's go to Manao now. Okay.
4: Hi, teacher David. I don't want to take up too much much time today in uh, class. I realize we're going uh, into a very full Discussion. It's very beneficial. I wanted to ask about your thoughts on what sort of um, ideas uh, surrounding uh, Gautama Buddha's teaching. With um, how how is it that um, if you are born and in a family which has um, a history, a genetic history of certain illnesses? Uh, that could be passed down from one generation to another. Um, how does that impact your training of the mind? And does it impact, um, in a sense, where you have to do more training with the mind in order to um, realize that there are these um, you know, difficulties and challenges?
1: Okay, great question, Manal. So there's physical illnesses, right, like diabetes and heart conditions and things like this, those physical conditions can be met with medical technology to be able to improve. So we have things like insulin and, you know, blood glucose monitors and things like this that we can overcome the the physical challenges that we may be presented with as part of our genetics of being born into a certain family. In terms of the mental aspects of this, The doctors will tell you that they think that there's a genetic component to what they're calling mental illness, but they're not really sure. There's a lot of uncertainty around this whole mental health field because they don't understand. It's very new. It's very unproven. There's no test that they can test you to see that you're bipolar or ADHD or ADD. There's no laboratory tests that they can do to to classify this. What's actually happening is that there's certain families and certain children that are brought up in these families and the children are learning and their mind is being conditioned from the adults around them. So if there's anger and hostility that's in a family and that when somebody does something you don't like, people yell, and holler, and throw things, and break things, and slam doors. That's what the children grow up with. They never learn how to deal with their uncomfortable feelings. What they learn is that when you feel uncomfortable, and you feel angry, you yell, you holler, you slam doors, and you break things, and maybe you hit people, or maybe you hurt people. That's what the mind is being conditioned to understand through that conformity, through that socialization that's happening and this can be explained in terms of things like substance abuse as well what's happening in substance abuse is the person doesn't understand how to cope with the challenges in life and someone's resorting to a substance and that's what they're using in order to falsely keep the mind in some kind of state that it feels is uh, desirable but what's really happening here is the family lacks the wisdom of understanding how to deal with anger or frustration or irritation or annoyance. The family doesn't understand how to deal with fear and guilt and shame and past traumatic events and doesn't understand how to deal with lack of concentration and things like this. So what's happening is they're not actually genetically transferring an unconcentrated mind from mom and dad to child. But what it is is mom and dad don't have the wisdom of how to make wise decisions in the world and train the mind and deal with life's challenges through wise decision making. So the child grows up, doesn't understand that wisdom, and they adopt the same habits and same functions as the parents and other adults around them because they're lacking the wisdom. And this is why a society like Thailand, it's had these teachings for 800 to 1200 years, children grow up learning that their feelings and their emotions are being caused by themselves and that they are responsible for those feelings and those emotions. And people train their mind through meditation and all these other teachings in order to move beyond these discontent feelings. And that's why we don't see the same problems here in Thailand that we see in other parts of the world. What's happening is that places like America, the UK, Australia, and other places that are really based in Western culture, a new culture, they're lacking the wisdom because they don't have the elders in a really deep, rich culture like Thailand. Thailand was never colonized by any Western power. So they have this deep respect for elders. They have this deep respect for teachers and people that are sharing wisdom. And that respect and politeness cultivates wisdom in their communities. So people understand how to deal with problems and they understand how to deal with the challenges that they face on a day-to-day basis that places like America and others, we don't have because we basically cut out the legs from under all the elders. We no longer respect the elders. When people get old, we just put them in uh, senior living homes and kind of tuck them away where they won't bother us so that we can keep making money because that's the way that society is trained in Western culture is happiness is all about money. So keep making money, making money, making money. Oh, mom and dad are too old to take care of themselves. Well let's use some of our money to put them in a home and kind of tuck them away so that we can keep making money. But that's not how these cultures work. And you know that Manal from India that the way these cultures work is that when mom and dad get old We take care of them and we take care of them as we grow up because they took care of us when we were growing up. So it's their gamma that we also take care of them as they grow old and aren't able to take care of themselves. And because of that, this wisdom of how to handle problems remains in the communities, that remains in the villages. So there is no such thing as passing a mental illness from one person to the other, it's not a virus. What we're seeing is we're seeing symptoms of an untrained mind because of a lack of wisdom. And if the family lacks the wisdom, then we're going to see the children are lacking the wisdom too. So they're going to function very similarly to their adults and their parents and their family because they're lacking the wisdom. They're learning from the people around them, and they're going to do the same things as the people around them. And this is the definition of a conditioned mind, essentially, that the mind's being conditioned to conduct itself in one way or another.
2: Perhaps, David, you'd like to save our last couple questions for the final break?
1: Yeah, you know, I probably won't go into a lot of detail with this last particular slide that I shared, but these are additional things that people say are mental illnesses, and you can see them in chapter 22, and you see them here on the screen. We've touched on a couple of these things. This isn't a complete exhaustive list of what people consider to be mental illnesses, but that list of what people consider to be mental illnesses is growing and growing and growing every day. You know, there's this collection of symptoms that, oh, that's a new mental illness, and oh, that's a new mental illness, and oh, that's a new mental illness. But in reality, what it is is just human beings are lacking wisdom They aren't training in moral conduct and they're not training in mental discipline. And because of that, we're seeing the unraveling of the human mind and we're labeling that as an illness and we're assigning medications, but the person doesn't necessarily get better. And it's definitely not a permanent solution, even if the medication is helping to a certain degree. So, the way to get to a permanent solution with all of these. Symptoms that we're experiencing, this suffering, this anguish, these challenges of life, these experiences that we're having that are leading to difficulties in our life, the way that we overcome those is through gaining wisdom, through improving our moral conduct, and training the mind to have more mental discipline. And when we do, any kind of symptom that somebody might refer to as a mental illness will be completely eradicated from the mind, and you'll see that it's a complete delusion that there is no such thing as these particular illnesses. There's symptoms, there's suffering, there's anguish, there's experiences that a people are having that are uncomfortable, that are unwelcome, that are unsatisfying, that feels very miserable, that creates sorrow and grief and despair in the mind. But those things aren't a illness the way that we think of diabetes or heart disease or other things these are just a mind that's lacking wisdom lacking mental discipline and also lacking moral conduct in some cases and therefore when we improve that then we see the improvement of the condition of the mind we see the improvement of the condition of the person's life and they can enjoy a wonderful life of making wise decisions with a Stable and steady mind rather than thinking that there's something defective about their brain.
2: Okay, David, we have a question on Facebook. Wynn would like to know could you please advise which chapter in your book mentions how to apply the Buddhist teachings to communication in the office?
1: I would suggest looking at chapter five, and that's the Eightfold Path, and look at right speech, which is part of the Eightfold Path. But there again, it's a complete life practice that you need to look at in order to fully comprehensively understand the full path and develop your life practice but in terms of speech and communication chapter five right speech is where you would like to look
2: let's go to miranda now
3: that was quick well i see on the screen there uh, PTSD um it's unclear how we should deal with symptoms from that that are sort of masking the real issue for example, I was diagnosed with uh, complex PTSD after leaving an abusive relationship, but the symptoms of that manifest really as anxiety and OCD type behaviors um, and used to be uh, what they call social anxiety disorder, pretty severe. That one I worked through. Um, but when dealing with the other symptoms, should be focus on those symptoms like focus on eliminating fear with anxiety um, and eliminating that craving for perfection with the OCD or is it better to really kind of get down to the root of those symptoms which is PTSD which is the mind still being attached to some of the things that happen during that relationship
1: so in reality if we took this complete chapter and all of this mental illness and just set it to the side with the understanding that everything's going to get cleared up by focusing on the three universal truths, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, all the meditation all that stuff, as you develop your life practice in that direction more and more, all of this stuff gets cleared up. Because what PTSD is, is whether it's a past abusive relationship or soldiers in war, or somebody who's been in an accident and is holding on to some traumatic event. What it is, is it's the mind holding on. It's holding on and holding on and holding on to this past experience of being in an abusive relationship, or being in war and killing people, or almost getting killed yourself, or being in a car accident or something like this. The mind is holding on to the past. And the mind's got to be trained to let go and realize that that harm that it experienced through those past experiences isn't going to happen again, because now you're wiser. The partner that you choose now is very different than the partner you chose before. In the past, when you experienced abuse, whatever type of abuse it was, you didn't have the wisdom and you kind of stuck around for a bit and continued to experience the abuse. Where now, if your current partner even gave an indication that they were going to do something similar to that, you'd probably be gone, right?
3: Because
1: you've you've gained that wisdom, right? So you've got to set in your mind like, okay, that stuff's in the past. That's never going to happen again. I don't have to be afraid of it. I don't have to worry about it. Not every man or woman or whoever it was that hurt you is going to do that. And I can have this loving, warm, compassionate relationship with this partner, and it's very different than the last partner. But see, the mind is craving permanence. It's holding on, and it's thinking that every man is the same, even though on an intellectual level, you understand that they aren't. But deep inside the mind, the mind holding on and craving permanence, and it's scared and it's fearful and it has this anxiety that that stuff's going to happen again. So if you understand that that's the case and you just set all that aside and you just stay focused on letting go and letting go. And whenever the thoughts of the past relationship come to your mind, you cut it off and let it go. I'm like, nope, that's not where I'm going today. I'm going to enjoy today and then it comes up again nope cut it off let it go cut it off let it go cut it off let it go what you'll notice is more and more time that the space between the arising of what happened in the past will lengthen you've probably already noticed that when you first got out yes. of the re- when you first got out of the relationship you were probably utterly scared and fearful and then as time has gone on there's been these longer and longer gaps of when the thoughts have arisen so whenever the thoughts arise from the past, cut them off and let them go. And know that that stuff's no longer gonna happen and stay focused on that core path, that meditation, that generosity, the loving kindness. If you still have resentment for that person, you know, put them in your loving kindness meditation. You keep training the mind to have that mental discipline, that having awareness of mind, that whenever those thoughts arise, you apply right effort and cut it off and cut it off. So you're trimming back this wild bush, trying to get it down to the stump so that it'll no longer grow up again.
3: Okay. It has been observed um, that, I mean, it has been getting better. It's been 10 years. Um, Mm -hmm. And then especially since learning with you, it's gotten better too, like markedly Mm -hmm. improved. So really, again, it's just following the eightfold path and applying right effort they're cut off those thoughts with their eyes and, but staying focused
1: in the present moment it seems yes so all of these symptoms that are being labeled as a certain mental illness there's nothing special that we need to do for ocd versus ptsd we can just set those labels aside as if they don't even exist and say okay what's the problem oh the mind is obsessed about perfection and you're going around the house trying to keep everything looking perfect, oh, that's because you're craving perfection. You're not OCD. You're just craving perfection. So now when you tell me, like, David, I keep having this obsession that every time I come into the fifth wheel, I keep wanting things to be in a special spot. And when they're not in that spot, I get so discontent. Then when I hear that, okay, well, let me give you a couple of things to think about and to do in order to address that craving and get rid of that craving. And when you get rid of that craving and you no longer are wanting perfection, then your mind can be at ease and it can be settled. So if we look at what the core problem is, which is the craving for perfection, we can get rid of this label of OCD and PTSD and just look at, well, what's really happening? Oh, the mind's holding on to this Event that happened in the past with your past relationship, okay, that means the mind's not in the present moment. It's having this arising of these fearful thoughts. Let's train the mind to be more in the present moment and forget about this label of PTSD. Let's just train the mind to get rid of holding on to the past thoughts and be in the present moment. And that's where the mind becomes liberated from those uncomfortable, unwelcome thoughts.
3: Okay, I understand. Thank you, sir.
2: You're welcome. I have one quick question to perhaps close us out, David. Sure. I wanted to point out a sentence in the book. You said, while the suffering and anguish of mental illness is real, the reason for why humans are having unwelcome emotions is not real. It seems as though that most of us probably know people who are going through this very real suffering. And knowing that it's real, it seems that the first thing that we can do is Have compassion for those people. But I was wondering if there's anything beyond that that we can also do for these people in our lives.
1: Yeah, compassion, loving kindness is a really wonderful place to start. That's never an unwise decision. That's a, a very wise decision to start with that. If people are being led towards pharmaceuticals and that kind of thing for unwelcomed feelings and the suffering that they're experiencing... That's not going to solve it. It's training the mind that's going to solve it. And if you're able to kindly, politely suggest to them that this is something that they might want to look at before they go down that path, then that could be something that you could choose to do. But ultimately, it's their choice. And this is where if people are conforming to what's going on around them, that's where the proliferation of Everybody's mentally ill. Everybody's on medication for something. It seems like, you know, when I talk to people from America, it seems like everybody's on medication for something. And that's because people are conforming to what everyone else does. Oh, you have sad thoughts? You should go see this doctor and get this medication and, you know, take care of that. But if you're in a position where someone's having sadness or anger or any discontentedness that we talk about in this program, then there's nothing wrong with you suggesting to them to look at the Buddhist teachings, that it's not a religion, that it's training the mind. And from what you've experienced and what you see other people experiencing, they can resolve their discontentedness through training the mind. Whether they choose to do that or not is their choice. But the more and more people in our culture, in our society, in this modern world that learn the Buddhist teachings and implement them and they see the results, this wisdom will permeate in the culture more and more. At one time, there was no Buddhism in places like Thailand and Sri Lanka or Bangladesh, uh, I think that gentleman was from. At one time, there was no Buddhist teachings. Those teachings gradually moved into those populations of people and those cultures, just like Thailand. At one time, they weren't here. So what we're all doing is we're kind of like the tip of the spear. We're the early adopters, like technology. We're the early adopters, and we're adopting this way of life, this better way of life. We're adopting it prior to the masses of society in places like America. The vast majority of American people don't understand the Buddhist teachings and that it is mental training, it's training the mind, it's not a religion. But the more that we understand those and then we share those teachings with others in kind, polite ways without craving or desire, but just as a loving kindness and compassion to help people, and then if they're interested, okay, they go forward, and if they don't, then they don't, and you're okay with that. One of the things that I've found that I think is really helpful is getting these books for people as gifts. Christmas is uh, six months around the, the corner or five months around the corner. If I lived in America and I had a lot of people around me that aren't into the Buddhist teachings, or if I lived anywhere and I didn't have people around me that were into the Buddhist teachings, I would be giving everybody a gift of these books. Because the more people that are learning and practicing these teachings around you, the better their life's going to get and the more peaceful your life's going to get because they're going to be more peaceful. You still need to work on your own liberation, your own liberation of mind and not crave for other people to learn these teachings. But if you've got five, 10, 15, 20 people around you that are learning and practicing these teachings together as a community, wow, things can get really peaceful really easily, really quickly, because everybody is working on not forcing each other to do things, not controlling each other, not craving for these things or not putting expectations on you. People around you are starting to practice loving kindness and compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity. People are starting to practice right speech and right action and right intention. It's like, oh wow, this is a really peaceful place to exist. You can still attain enlightenment without people around you learning and practicing these teachings. But the more that people are learning and practicing around you, it'll just make things that much better for you. So I always suggest people to... Get these books for people
2: as a gift. That sounds like great advice, David, and thank you for guiding us through what can be a challenging topic today.
1: Yeah, there's some other talks that I did on this topic that you may be interested to listen to because I kind of do each talk differently, of course, because of impermanence, right? So if you're interested in this topic and you want to hear some other things that I've said on it, there's two other talks that I've done on chapter 22 that can be really helpful for you to listen and learn so now that this program is the third time of going through if there's a certain topic that you would like to dig in more detail there's always going to be two additional talks that i did aside from today's and there's the chapter in the book and there's personal guidance and there's posting questions in the facebook group so there's more depth here than what i'm sharing in these classes in these classes i just share to a certain level of detail And then kind of see what questions you guys have about how much deeper you want to go into it. And it's up to your own individual interest to seek guidance and decide what areas you would like to dig deeper into. So some suggestions for you would be to read the chapter, to go back to the other talks that I've done on the same topic, to post in the Facebook group, to send private messages or ask for personal guidance through scheduling an appointment where you can talk about any of these topics along the way in much more detail because there's a lot more detail available for you. But when I teach a class, I have to kind of teach at a certain level and then wait for you guys to dig into it more deeply. So as we progress in this program, we're going to be in chapter 23 next week. Symbolism of the teachings, reminders through imagery. This is essentially how the Buddha used to share the teachings because he would teach orally but the people that he would teach to were for all intents and purposes illiterate they didn't necessarily read and write they were still smart they were still intelligent they were still wise but there just weren't books available there weren't scripts there weren't pieces of paper like we have today to sit down and actually write things on and produce books the way that we have. Technology has come a long way. So people didn't sit down and, and read books. They sat with wise teachers and learned orally. And the way that he reminded people of the teachings is through imagery and through symbolism. And some of that stuff still is around today. So I'm gonna share with you guys the imagery and symbolism. Now that you've learned the teachings throughout this program, I can show you a symbol teach you what it is. And now when you go to a temple or when you look at artwork or when you open a book and you see that imagery, it will remind you of the teachings. So I'm going to connect the teachings that you already learned to imagery that you're going to see in artwork, that you're going to see in architecture, that you're going to see in sculptures and you're going to see in temples. And then it becomes really fun as you go around in Buddhist communities and temples and you see artwork. It's like, oh, that's reminding me about the Eightfold Path. Oh, that's craving, desire, attachment. Oh, that's reminding me that I can attain enlightenment. And there's all these reminders that you're going to see. And it's a way to like kind of spur the mind into remembering the teachings of the Buddha. And this is how he reminded people of the teachings is through symbolism. So we'll do that next Sunday. And then this Wednesday, we're gonna be doing breathing mindfulness meditation together, so you're welcome to join for either of those. For any of you guys that would like to start the Canon in English study group, that's gonna be starting this Saturday uh, with volume two. So you can download that book or you can order that book. We're gonna be doing 10 chapters a week. So this Saturday, the idea is, is that you should already have read those 10 chapters and it should take you about an hour, but I suggest you read just like 10 or 15 minutes a day over the course of three, four, five days so that you trickle the teachings into the mind. And then on Saturday, you come to class having already learned the teachings from the book, and then the way that the class is structured is it's just based on your questions. I actually don't have any prepared topics to discuss. I basically start the class with meditation, and I guide you guys in a short meditation and then I basically say what questions do you guys have and then based on the questions that are in the class we discuss the teachings that you've read so if you start with volume two we're going to go through all the other volumes it's going to take a total of about two years to go through all the books by doing 10 chapters a week now, that might sound like a long time, but if you put that in reference to it took the Buddha six years to attain enlightenment, and if you put that in reference to all the countless lives that you've had over millions and millions and millions of years, two years to learn the Buddhist teachings is really just a, a blink of an eye. So if you pick up those books, either download them or take a copy to go have it printed or order a printed copy off of Amazon you'll be able to join that program. And you can do this program and that program together at the same time if you'd like, or you can just move into that program 100%. And as this one kind of finishes out, it's up to you. You can also just restart this program and just go through this program again. You can ask James about that. This is his third time going through this program. I think maybe the second time from an all. So some people just go through this program two, three, four times before they actually potentially move into the Polycanon and English study group. Or you can do both at the same time. You might want to talk to Nick about that. He actually started doing this program and that program at exactly the same time from the very beginning. He's been doing both programs. So different people approach it different ways. It depends on your time, your available energy, your effort, the resources that you have, how much space you have in your life and your capacity to take in the teachings and learn. But I'm here to share on Sunday, Wednesday, and Saturday, and I'll progress you guys through learning and practicing these teachings and helping you guys learn more and more of the truth of the Buddhist teachings so you can awaken the mind to this enlightened mental state where the mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently, no longer affected by discontentedness. So have a lovely rest of your day, a lovely rest of your weekend, and I'll see you in a future class. Sawadiha.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment.